0: This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Hello and welcome to the Film Jive podcast. We are recording this episode on January 4th, 2015. My name is Zach. And I'm Nick. This is episode 87 where we are discussing the third and final installment in Peter Jackson's The Hobbit trilogy with The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, which stars Martin Freeman, Luke Evans, Evangeline Lilly, Ian McKellen, Richard Armitage, and Orlando Bloom. Nick, would you please read the plot synopsis?
1: Having reclaimed Erebor and vast treasures from the dragon Smaug, Thorin Oakenshield sacrifices legion and honor in seeking the Arkenstone, despite Smaug's fiery wrath upon Lake Town and the desperate attempts by Bilbo Baggins to make him see reason. Meanwhile, Sauron sends legions of orcs in a sneak attack upon the Lonely Mountain. As the fate of Middle-earth hangs in the balance, the races of men, elves, dwarves, and eagles must decide whether to unite and prevail, or all die.
0: So one of the things that's different, sets this third film apart from all of the Peter Jackson Middle-earth films, is that the journey is over. All the characters are in the location that they will be in for the rest of the film. In addition to that, there is no uh, preamble to this film. So this picks up right where Desolation of Smog left off with Smog heading towards Lake Town. And I think that makes this movie, more than the previous two films, very much a companion. So Nick, how did you feel about how this continued and concluded the story of The
1: Hobbit? Well, I think going into this film, I was struck by my lack of excitement. I was thinking back to when I went to see the first Hobbit film, and thanks to the, being a fan of Lord of the Rings, uh, I was I was really excited about that first one and seeing uh, how the story would continue. I don't think my expectations were matched, and I think the first one was a bit of a disappointment. And I think that's all of that combined made me realise that going into this third one, I really wasn't that excited about seeing it at all. Um, I was going to more of a obligation to finish the story and while these films i don't think have been anything as bad as something like the star wars prequels but i do think this suffer this film also suffers with similar problems to something like the star wars prequels my biggest concern with it all is the the characters and the investment as an audience that you have with them i was noticing with this with this final film that I still don't really know that at least half of the dwarfs is the dwarfs characters, so our 13 dwarfs. But is that important? I think so. We spent the three films with them, and we've been going on this adventure with them, and I don't feel I know more than maybe two or three of them well at all. When there's any drama involving them, I didn't find that to be much of a problem. I was thinking back to uh, the final Lord of the Rings film. There's an excellent moment when Aragorn says to Frodo that the hobbits don't have to to bow to anyone, and everyone bows to them, and that got me a bit choked up. That's a moment where you've been with these characters on this journey, you've invested in them. I thought it was a great moment at the end of that trilogy, showing you how much you connect with these characters. The dwarves barely got a a goodbye at all. And whilst there have been a couple of characters that have been interesting who we have spent a lot of focus on such as Thorin, Bilbo, I do think that the characters and their stories have not been very strong. There's also an overuse of CGI, something that doesn't interest me very much. Um I, I'm sure the initial Lord of the Rings films had lots of CGI too, but there's just something about these Hobbit films that doesn't Look quite right to me. It looks a bit fake. In what ways does it look fake to you? I think one of the, the worst parts about it is is the orcs, the CGI orcs. And I know there are some actual practical ones in the film as well, but some of these CGI characters don't quite feel right to me. And I just think that something with makeup and a proper costume would feel much more organic standing next to our characters.
0: But do you feel the same way about Gollum? I mean, that's a fully CGI creature. Yeah. I I feel like there's maybe some... I feel like there's maybe some selective reasoning about the CGI, but I think using the orcs, because you made them an example, more so than CGI, I think what's maybe irritating people about the orc depiction is that they're very broad villain portraits. Azog and Bolg are essentially the antagonists... Across these films, they serve as the face for Sauron. Yeah. And their appeal is basically in the physical threat that they that they pose, more so than in their intellect. Uh, but I don't think accusing the CGI as being responsible for that is valid criticism. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking CGI, because I think... Complaining about CGI is pretty useless in terms of cr- critique. But this constant aesthetic judgment regarding CGI has been, I think, a mentality that has really diluted a lot of the critical conversations that people have had with these films. When somebody says, mm. for example, like you just did, CGI doesn't interest me, or this whole film is CGI and that makes it look fake, or that isn't real cinema, like people were shouting with 48 frames. None of that actually has anything to do with the film in- itself. And to be fair, you know, I, I've been guilty of, of, of that as well. But that's a purely subjective reaction that doesn't say anything about what the film is doing with that technology to tell the story. And I, th- I believe that the reason why people have reacted so negatively to these films being predominantly CGI... Which you are correct, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is primarily CGI as well. But I think what separates from separates these films from those films, for the most part, is that these films are not evoking any kind of photorealism. Most live-action blockbusters have, have used CGI to this point as a tool that makes itself transparent to the audience. And I think the rejection of, of CGI in these films has been because the filmmakers have not employed CGI as a transparent tool. Um, I don't think they necessarily want the audience to spend the entire film trying to create distinctions between what is actually New Zealand landscape and what has been digitally processed, but I think they're trying to create a universe that isn't primarily influenced by landscape realism as we understand it on Earth. And if you were to compare it to an artistic style, I would say these films have been more painterly in their depiction of Middle Earth. You, the brush strokes are more n- noticeable. They're not hiding the texture so much. And if that's not to your taste, I understand that. I'm not even saying it's necessarily to mine either. But I don't think it's constructive criticism to judge the film more harshly because it isn't, it isn't an artistic style that you admire. Yeah. My initial impressions uh what was most surprising to me in in this film is that it's essentially exactly what is written in the novel. It's it's pretty devoted to how the battle is described in the Hobbit uh apart from the obvious changes that have been carried over from the previous two films and I think Peter Jackson's son devotion to the text in this movie uh, it suddenly feels like a lot of narrative threads that were established in the first two films end up abandoned and almost retconned from the bigger picture i think the biggest mistake is that this third film it abandons the implication that the arkenstone is significant beyond just being a symbol of union or leadership in the previous two movies the arkenstone is discussed as if it's this necessary tool to unite the dwarves together and that with this they will restore the kingdom. In desolation of Smaug, I think Thranduil even says to Thorin, you seek which bestows you the right to rule, the Arkenstone. So that line of dialogue suggests that Thorin needs this to reclaim the throne of Erebor. This film the Arkenstone becomes a completely a tool for blackmail. And I see that as a problem because in these films, the way they've set it up, what is Bilbo's primary primary task on this quest? You know, why do they need a burglar that to steal the Arkenstone from Smog? That's not mm. how it is in the book. You know, they need a burglar to steal some treasure. They don't really know why they need a burglar in the book.
1: No, I mean it's just something Gandalf tells them they need, isn't
0: it? Yeah. And, and if, if Thorin has the Arkenstone in, in the context of this movie, it will him, drive him far more insane than he already is. So then they use it as leverage. And I, I don't understand that. And I don't understand then if that's the case. How do the Why does Dane and his army of dwarves, why do they even show up? If, if, if it's stated that in order for the dwarves to come to Thorin's aid or that the, the dwarves will be reunited... They have to have the Arkenstone, like that's implied. If Thorin doesn't have it, why would Dane then come to Erebor? I don't I don't understand why that would happen.
1: Well, perhaps they could say that Thorin, no, the Arkenstone is nearby, and if we want to make sure we get our hands <laughs> on it, we're going <laughs> to need your ridiculous. help. I, mean, and it, then it I does, should have it,
0: heard him say that to that little raven or whatever it is.
1: <laughs> I think you've got a good point there, though, about the... The Arkenstone and a bit of confusion about it. And so, so, in the book, I haven't read that for a long time. Um, Bilbo is he's hired as a burglar because all they're planning to do is to steal the Arkenstone from That they're, they're not interested in taking the mountain back.
0: No, in the book, the Arkenstone is more of a symbol for the dwarves, but they don't, it's not why. They're going on the quest. They are going on the quest, as I remember it, to, to get gold. Well, to re- get gold and reclaim the kingdom.
1: Right, and that's what they were talking about in the first and and maybe the, like you said, the second film was they were trying to give more of a meaning to these dwarfs' mission rather than just trying to get rich. And it, it's honestly, it's
0: actually, it makes more sense. It improves improves upon the story in the book. It's not just about stealing gold anymore. It's about helping, in the case of these films, it gives greater purpose to Bilbo's presence because it's about helping the dwarves reclaim the reclaim their home. Yeah. And that's an underlying theme from film one that I do think is one of the best decisions that was made in this trilogy. And it's not completely abandoned, and I'll talk about that later. Uh, I think it's well integrated elsewhere, but that kind of gets abandoned in relationship to the dwarves. and the flaw with all of this in the context of the story is that it presupposes that bilbo's on the quest because they need the arkenstone so if they don't need the arkenstone if the Mar- arkenstone ends up just being a macguffin which at this point is what it is i mean i'm who knows maybe the in, in the extended edition it'll clear all of this up and everything not that i care about that but by making it a macguffin it undermines the entire quest it undermines Bilbo's presence in all of this, it is a completely botched element that has been a huge... It's it's basically been the motivator for the whole film in the, in, the, in this adaptation. Not in the book, in these films. The Arkenstone has been the most important thing that the dwarves have been striving for. And by completely ignoring it in this third film, all this exposition, all this implication, by not seeing that through in some way, and it just becoming a way to create leverage between Thorin and the men and the elves, it ruins the story of these films in a way. Mm. How did you feel about um, how they depicted Thorin's dragon sickness and how that
1: was all resolved? Uh, interesting. It's a little bit unusual, uh, which may might have been a credit to this film to do something a little bit outside the box. I thought Richard Armitage was, was pretty strong as as the warped Thorin. Uh, I mean, he became a pretty despicable character in this film. He's almost a villain of the piece, certainly for the first half of the film, as he starts becoming jealous and protective of of the mountain and seal himself inside it. There was the particular scene where he was walking on was it liquid gold and he sort of sinks into it?
0: It's the gold that has um it has reshaped itself after they melted the oh, yes, they statue and desolation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and he's walking across that. I mean I thought that was interesting and and fairly well done. What were your thoughts?
0: I don't think it really makes any sense. It's fine that he gets dragon sickness. Which which, um,
1: remind me, that is has the dragon cursed the gold, or is this just something that is this well, just getting?
0: I don't greedy? know how it's worked in the book in these films, though. and I don't know. I, I did watch the extended editions of the previous two movies. and I don't know I don't really recall what's in the theatrical cuts. But in these films, it's been suggested that the dragon sickness is this hereditary hereditary disease within the the bloodline of Durin that Thorin and his father and his grandfather all come from.
1: So it just relates to Thorin? Yeah,
0: I don't don't buy that. But I think one thing that the book doesn't do is it doesn't ever show you what's happening with Thorin and the other dwarves in Erebor. So when you read the book, you're just getting the action of the battle. You don't know what's happening inside. Now, obviously, because you're making a film, you can't do that. If for some reason we just the battle started and then we didn't know what the hell was going on for the next hour with Thorin and then Thorin and the dwarves came charging out, everybody in the audience would be like, what the hell is going on? Mm. But what doesn't make sense to me is why he would not fight. His madness at that point in the movie would have to have him in some way. I feel like he would either exit the kin- kingdom and attack Whoever had the Arkenstone. It doesn't make sense from the perspective of the other dwarves, who in no way would never not go out and fight. The characters that we have seen through these two movies, those 12 or 13 characters, they're not just going to stand there and do nothing for an hour. So the whole way that it goes about exploring the dragon sickness just felt really nonsensical to me. Now, yeah, there's some interesting... uh, One of the things that I did really like was how At certain times, Smog's voice would be projected through Thorin. He would start sounding like the dragon. You know, it's kind of an interesting audible device. Um, But going back to Dane, because I think Dane's arrival is just really bizarre, what also confuses me is if Thorin has dragon sickness, then why would he be happy about Dane and the other, other dwarves showing up? when Dane is the successor to the throne if Thorin were to die.
1: Well, I, I think Thorin would assume he's the king and he's going to survive, and that means he's in charge and no one can take the Ark and Stone or the gold away from him.
0: But, but if, if Dane comes to realize what's actually happening, if he became aware of what Thorin is actually doing, even after, say after the Battle of the Zorf survives, there's no reason why Thorin would then let Dane into the kingdom.
1: Well, I don't know about that. He's because... already
0: suspicious of the only 13 dwarves that went on the quest with him. Why would he be not suspicious? He's suspicious of everybody. Oh, that he thinks true. the dwarves He's... have stolen the Arkenstone from him. So why yes, would he not about then sus- be suspicious of the other 500 dwarves that are at his doorstep?
1: Hmm. Maybe his opinion changes when the battle starts and all he's thinking about is survival. I don't know, it seems like a bit of a uh, stretch, yeah. Uh, to touch on a, a point you briefly made earlier about Smaug, um, did that feel a bit strange to you? Because to me it felt like uh, the opening 10 minutes or so with Smaug and his demise felt like a bit of a footnote to me in this film, and something to get out of the way so we could move on to the Battle of the Five Armies. and. For me, it did not feel natural at all. This should have been something that was put into the end of the second film. To to have it over so quickly felt really odd to me. What what were your thoughts on it? I actually really loved that set piece. Oh, I like the set piece, but to to have you mean it the is, way that
0: it just begins that way?
1: It feels like a a mini movie with a beginning, middle, and end in the first ten minutes.
0: I don't know. I, I'd have to rewatch it to know how in relationship to film 2 whether the decision to cut before was a wise decision or not. At least when I saw it in the theater, I was sort of caught off guard but very relieved to see that like, okay, I'm not going to get 10 minutes of exposition that r- explain what I just spent 6 hours of watching. We're just thrust back into where we write, where we left off which has ne- never happens in these Peter Jackson movies. We always open with some minute, 10-minute sequence that reestablishes the motivations and the exposition of the quest. Mm-hmm. I remember people complaining in film two because Thorin and Gandalf meeting at the Prancing Pony and this being a 10-minute sequence that explained things that we already knew.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: in this case, they don't do that. They assume that you saw film two and that you're going to understand what's happening in film three. But more than anything else, it's just a reminder that Smog is probably the crowning achievement of this entire exercise of making these three movies but i think the scale the scope of his destruction was really well captured it was but you were there was still a lot of foregrounding of character and that scene is ultimately about bard and i think how they integrated bane into the conflict was creative i mean it it's kind of dumb it doesn't make any sense how somebody could shoot an arrow off somebody's elbow it, the way that that, with his bow, it just defies yeah. the laws of physics completely. Not any
1: arrow, either. A black arrow.
0: When you're reading a book, I, I don't know that this is the case in The Hobbit, but a lot of books will end at a climax in a chapter, and then the next chapter will pick up where that's left. And that just kind of felt like what they were doing. It was almost a more of a literary transition.
1: I think Martin Freeman was sold short yet again with these films. Um, and I think he does really well with the moments he gets. Um, I'm thinking of some quieter moments he gets with Thorin at the start of the film, uh, him and Gandalf at the end of the film. Martin Freeman, I think, is really impressed as Bilbo Baggins. But I do wonder whether giving him more, would that really have benefited the film? Perhaps not. But it just feels like films that are called The Hobbit, you feel like you should have got a bit more of of Bilbo's (laughs) character and what he's thinking. When you watch Star Wars
0: and The Big Dipper and Orion, Aren't at war with one another. Do you get disappointed then? The who? I guess that'd be constellation wars. But like, or or like in um in like Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Are you upset when two characters don't spend an entire act of the movie just saying goodbye to one another, and it's not just a really long? I mean, how literal do you want to take the title? Because it does have the subtitle of the Battle of the Five Armies, and there is a yeah. battle, and there are five armies. Yeah, and these sequels being titled The Hobbit. I mean that's that's a marketing design. That's a way to sell the movies. If it was just titled The Battle of the Five Armies, people would be confused about the reference and they would be shouting, "Where the hell's the Hobbit?" you know. But my feeling about Bilbo and I actually in rewatching the previous two films, I think Bilbo in the first two films, those are his movies. The dwarves are constantly indebted or aided by Bilbo. To continue on this quest and I think in this case Bilbo's on screen as much as he needed to be his arc in relationship to being a burglar and in proving to himself and to the dwarves that he's just as capable as anyone which is essentially what his arc has been since film one that was fulfilled I mean even Frodo in Return of the King is on screen far less than he was in the previous films. And he has a clear goal. His goal, the film's success, the story of the film's success, is dependent upon Frodo. And even that film spends more time with Aragon, Legolas, Gimli, Gandalf, even Pippin to a certain degree.
1: And whilst I'd say I don't need Bilbo to be doing a lot more, as in killing Smaug or something like that, it's it's more just spending more time with Bilbo in the sense of just more scenes with, with characters. Get so perhaps if Bilbo had spent a bit more time talking to some of the other dwarfs, that would have been interesting. What a Bilbo. Well, what are they thought- gonna talk about? <laughs> I, I dunno But what are Bilbo's thoughts well, he could talk to the other dwarfs about Thorin's dragon sickness. What are Bilbo's but thoughts? But why? They
0: know what's happening. Everybody in that kingdom knows what's happening to Thorin. What is Bilbo gonna say about dragon sickness that the other dwarves don't already know?
1: What about Bilbo's thoughts on um the dwarf elf relationship what do i mean what do you what do you want this <laughs> to be like a I wanted bilbo to get talk more, show more of martin he... freeman i thought he was putting in an excellent performance and, and hardball deserved...
0: with bilbo baggins you know like <laughs> let's talk about the current situation in the middle east i mean what i don't know what bilbo can contribute to the the themes that you're talking about
1: i think i just wanted more of martin freeman's performance I thought it was capped, and I th- I think he could have done, could have had more moments.
0: I mean, ha- but what about his moment shared between Thorin at short as Thorin is dying? Is that not a great moment for Bilbo? Um, or or Bilbo and Thorin talking about, uh, home and the plant and and Bilbo having the acorn.
1: I thought that was a yeah. No, I, I mentioned I mean... those those bits at the start. I, the Thorin and Bilbo moments at the start were very good. I'll tell you one other. Well, a strange moment, I thought. I was wondering what your thoughts are on the character of Albert. Alfred, you mean? Oh, Alfred, sorry. Alfred. I thought it was bizarre um, how much he was in the film. As, you know, he's a despicable character from the, fir- the second film. He's carried that behavior into the third one. But what I thought was bizarre was, was that we we kept on revisiting him over and over again well after I thought his story was done and I thought, Oh, okay, I, I see what's gonna happen here. His character's either gonna develop, you know, he's gonna grow and he's gonna become a, a better man or he's gonna get his comeuppance and and it'll probably be the end of him. Uh, neither of those things happened and it just it just carried on. He just kept on being a despicable character of no use to anyone. I actually no, he's, a bit he, frustrating he has a use the comic relief? Is, is no, that...
0: he's not a well-written character, and yeah, the comedy is broad. But, that, I mean, would anybody expect anything more from Peter Jackson? Every not particularly, but comedic I just stroke it... is broad. But he serves a purpose in that he is opposed directly to Bard. I mean, he's used as a way to define Bard and to show and really flesh out the contrast between bard and thorin as thorin is undergoing dragon sickness and turning his back bard is doing the exact opposite and and because alfred is is stealing the gold and avoiding the fight in a way he's doing exactly what thorin is doing in that moment i think alfred is it a stupid character yeah i mean they could have probably developed a character that was more interesting but him being as despicable as he is, I think, is necessary to kind of elevating Bard. I mean, Bard is a, a character that doesn't have much to do in Tolkien's text. He's not somebody we really learn that much about. And I think Alfred is shown is used to show the the heroism of that character.
1: I just found it a bit repetitive and uh, tiresome. Cause...
0: But he's gone by the middle of Act 2. I mean, he runs off in his... Uh, lady outfit and yeah. we don't see him again and apparently i read somewhere that there is a scene where he does get his comeuppance
1: oh i just i felt like there was something missing there and i i imagine it's been cut
0: now somebody who has a big role in this film is uh legolas oh yeah and i want to talk about legolas because i think here more than ever it's fair to critique how peter jackson has used Leg- Legolas within within this story, and I felt after this film, Legolas has become a character that is nothing more than a gimmick. It's gone to such extremes that it's almost become parody, and I think in this film more than the other, there's a lot of instances of that. And it wouldn't and it wouldn't be something I would complain about because it is Peter Jackson basically being a showman, which I admire. But nothing that Legolas does in this film contributes to the story in any way. His fight with Bolg after he rescues Toriel is such a waste of time. It does nothing to develop anybody's arc at all. It would have just been so much more economical if Bolg died, you know, after falling off the cliff with Toriel or something, it, or if Bolg. Did kill Keeley, but Keely got the upper hand of Bolg right at the end and just disposed of that. Like In many ways, it ends up distracting from the the fight between Thorin and Azog, which does have thematic relevance. And I feel like it's just because they need something for leggedless to do in these films. So they invent all of these extreme set pieces that don't really do much. And I mean that's that shot. I I don't like to pick on these things because they're I don't. It's a matter of subjectivity, but that shot of him climbing up those floating rocks. I mean, was that just not ridiculous? Oh
1: yeah, yeah. For me, that that plays into the unbelievable, uh, and it's not just CGI, but it's also this this approach to modern Hollywood blockbusters. Um, that if you look, uh, I I hate to keep comparing to Lord of the Rings, but when you look at the action that Legolas does in the Lord of the Rings films, compared to what he's doing in the Hobbit films, it's he's he's so much more extreme and uh, well, I don't know about that. I, I can remember
0: the Oh, there his is big the, moment the in Return thing. of the King with the element that's pretty extreme. Yeah, um, that's true. Which in many ways they re they replicate in his uh the sequence with the tower and the in the troll and using the tower to kind of push him forward oh, yeah, which is just a whole other kind of yeah i don't know do mess. i just
1: i wonder if i'm just being nostalgic about lord of the rings but i just feel like um i mean it, i'm also reminded of something like the indiana jones films are a good comparison in terms of the the recent one and the original ones and the action you get in the original films will be a you know a car chase or something like that it all feels and looks real because the majority of it is but then you look at something like in the modern film, There's they're driving cars along cliff edges that look clearly fake, very artificial, and and it just doesn't quite feel right or, or believable to me. And I know that we're dealing with fantasy films here, so of course it's always going to look a bit um, otherworldly, but I, that Legolas moment walking up the step, running up the rocks in midair, Sort of surfing a tower and so on—it's all a bit. It it just makes me roll my eyes a bit, and I get a bit disconnected with the film.
0: And the other thing with Legolas uh, that I thought was kind of confusing was his final scene with uh, Thranduil. And and what I don't understand is if so much of their conflict with one another and Thranduil being such a cold character is around is is constructed so much around Legolas's mother. Why would we not know about that much sooner? <laughs> like it yes, seems like such they don't an afterthought. Give us a lot
1: of information about it, do they? No. We find out that in this, um, in this third film, that he obviously had a mother who, because uh, Thranduil's his father, right? Yes. Yeah. We find out that he had a mother and that she was kidnapped and taken to this dark castle. Am I right?
0: Uh perhaps. I don't actually remember that. I perhaps. think she was
1: taken prison do you remember he goes to visit a this sort of Oh out- no 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 that's out- Mount Goonda Gundib- that's
0: Mount Gundaba. Yeah. She was taken there?
1: I think so. I think she was oh, okay. kidnapped and taken there. I don't there.
0: yeah, that could be. I don't remember that dialogue, but and, I do remember him talking about his mother to Toriel and that.
1: Yeah, thing. I think she was taken there and 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 it just uh it opens a new story thread, which you think we're gonna learn much more about but we don't
0: well the only other mention apart from the two things of his mother uh and i can't remember if this comes up in the theatrical cut or if this was something i saw in the extended editions is that we do learn well we don't really learn but i think you can make the assumption that uh the diamonds that the dwarves have that thranduil wants are diamonds that belong to his wife and that's why he's so adamant about getting these diamonds but I don't think if you watch the theatrical films, you would have any idea that that's why he wants those diamonds, mm. which if you're just going to remove all of that information in the theatrical cuts, you might as well just cut all of that out entirely from yeah. the film because it doesn't, when you're watching these movies, it doesn't really make sense why Thranduil is obsessed with these diamonds. It makes it sound like he is just motivated by greed.
1: Yeah. Well, it's similar to the dwarfs, I suppose, and initially you think they're going there for gold, but in the film they've developed that Arkenstone, mm-hmm. the importance of that.
0: How did you feel about the uh, how the, the Toriel and Keeley romance saw its way through?
1: Didn't really do it for me. I, I think both of those guys are, are good actors, and um, I thought their characters were interesting. They're hot. Yeah, apparently, if you're if you're a hot dwarf, then you really are in trouble in this film because uh, there, not many of them make it.
0: Well, all the dwarves are hot.
1: <laughs> Their relationship didn't do it for me, though. I mean, from the, from the start, I always thought it was a bit odd how they um, <laughs> how they liked to, how they suddenly uh, fell in love, and I think um, one of Keeley's first lines to Terio is something about. I could have anything down on my trousers, and i I don't think that's a very good pickup line, and I'm surprised it did it for Tario.
0: why well, I, I but I think she likes uh maybe the <laughs> the crassness of of that comment, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't think the romance is well realized, but I did read somewhere, and I think this is kind of an interesting interpretation of this why Peter Jackson included this in the films to begin with is that it's it's used to kind of underline a theme that is present throughout Tolkien's work, in that in order for, for evil to be defeated, it's important from, for people from different cultures and races to come together. In a way, their romance is used as a way to, as a contrast to the antagonism between Thorin and Thranduil. That here you have two characters that can't set aside the racial differences and come together, but you do have Toriel and Keeley, even though I think it's been clear from, from the beginning that their romance was never going to actually be fulfilled. You weren't going to leave the end of film three with some steamy sex scene between Toriel and Keeley. Although I wouldn't mind that for the extended edition. <laughs> if I could fit that in somewhere.
1: Yeah.
0: Where I do think the movie does kind of see it through well is using the death of Keely and Toriel's grief as a way... To, to motivate a change in Thranduil in a way. I actually think his, their scene together at the end. uh, Maybe the dialogue is not the greatest, you know, why does it hurt so much? But I think how Thranduil responds to her in relationship to how he's treated her throughout the whole series is being very just nasty. But I think that shift in how he treats her in that moment is important to motivating that his character is maybe going, is like opening up the shell a little bit. Mm. Along with Legolas leaving him, which I wanted to ask, what you what you made of the the Aragon reference?
1: Uh, I find that prequels often get that temptation to reference something we're aware of. You know, look look ahead to the the story that we we already know, and sort of lay the the groundwork for that, foreshadowing it. And I often find that a bit tedious quite a lot in TV at the moment, there's a lot of TV prequels, something like Hannibal, for instance, or, or a lot of the superhero shows, because um, we know where that story is going. Eventually, we know Hannibal's going to become a, a dangerous criminal, we know, a, you know, Arrow, we know that that character is going to go on to be the Green Arrow. And they always f- frequently sort of trying to, I think, cleverly tease the audience. But usually, I find it a bit tedious. In this case, um, I thought it was, it was okay. It was, was harmless enough. wouldn't go either way, to be honest.
0: Well, when I first heard it, I thought it didn't make sense, because how, how is Aragorn even alive?
1: Now, in the books, Aragorn is actually 50 in The Lord yeah. of Rings.
0: Well, I looked into it, and apparently, at this point, Aragorn would have been 10.
1: Right. I, I was surprised we didn't get an appearance from uh, Frodo at the end of the film.
0: That saddened you, huh?
1: No, no, it didn't sadden me, but I was surprised we didn't see him. I thought it was quite a nice ending that directly led into Lord of the Rings, seeing a scene from a different point of view. And I think Peter Jackson probably took on board the criticism from Return of the King for the the many endings, so he decided to keep this one fairly concise.
0: Yeah, well I actually kind of dis- I feel kind of mixed about it. I I thought a lot of it felt pretty truncated, at least before he got back to the shire. I I thought once Thorin died and that's all that sees itself through. There isn't really any catharsis in how everyone deals with that, which I understand isn't necessarily needed, but like you were just saying, I am when I guess one of the few people that I really like the ending of The Return of the King and the multiple threads. I I feel like that's one of the more emotionally engaging and cathartic moments of that trilogy.
1: Well, I think something that epic deserves an ending of that song. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. no, I agree. Especially told over three films. I mean, to be honest, I almost tolerate the rest of return of the King just so I can get to the ending. Mm. So not learning about the fate of Erebor and not really getting sort of any elaboration on the state of Middle-earth after this battle, even just something as, like, where's the funeral of Thorin? Where did Toriel go? Uh, After nine hours of story, I wouldn't have minded some more time for there to be a sense of closure. Yeah. Uh, Now, I know apparently the funeral scene will be in the extended edition. That has been, I guess, confirmed. Mm. Uh, But, but, you know, this whole thing, I don't want to have to wait for extended editions to resolve subplots. I feel like a theatrical cut of a film should be enough on its own that it doesn't need another incarnation.
1: I don't know if this is something Peter Jackson is maybe trying to be a bit of a trendsetter with extended editions, but um, in the, in the 10 or so years since Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, there doesn't seem to be, there are no other film franchises who have decided to adopt the extended cut approach.
0: Well, I don't know how much of it's Peter Jackson or if it's Warner brothers. I, I can see why they did I never watched Lord of the Rings extended editions, but I know that those films are considerably longer. Yeah. And I know with these Hobbit films, it's only been about, in each film, about 20 minutes of additional material. So I wonder if the success of the extended editions in the previous trilogy has kind of pushed Warner Brothers to have Peter Jackson put Do together these for these films. Because I... I will say from watching the two, I mean, there's some interesting components that get added, but it doesn't really change the course of the story in any way.
1: No. I mean, I saw the Desolation of Smaug extended edition and was interested to see how much more of Bjorn we got to see, um, who you know, barely was in the Desolation of Smaug. Barely. But in this, um, got to know him a lot better, and I thought it was much more interesting. But yeah, so I I can see from a business point of view why the extended editions are are attractive options. I mean, you've shot all this extra footage, which you've paid an enormous amount to do. Why let it just sit in a vault somewhere and never see the light of day?
0: Now, I I think where the ending is really strong is Bilbo returning to the Shire. Uh, I think how Peter Jackson juxtaposes... How in the beginning of the film of the series, Thorin is searching for a home, and once he arrives to Erebor, it's been destroyed. And then contrasting that at the end with Bilbo returning to the Shire, and finding his home destroyed, and both of these homes having to be re- rebuilt. You know that the planting of the acorn—that's what it is—and and calling back sort of to what Thorin says to Bilbo earlier in the film about. If more people valued home and above gold, I think he says something like the world would be a merrier place or something like that. Mm. Uh, I thought that was a really strong sort of encapsulation of that thematic arc and i I also liked the the framing device, which is kind of interesting, I guess in in that it's implying that maybe the whole film that we just saw has been recollected, recounted from the memory of Bilbo. Uh, And it's weird to think about that really in in the timeline of Middle Earth, if you look at these six films, five minutes elapsed in the course of those nine hours of these movies. And I guess that it makes these films, you, you mentioned, I think you said the word footnote at some point. It does make these films to a certain degree feel like the footnote to the trilogy that's following afterwards in a way. I I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But one of the one of the things that I did think was strange, you mentioned the last interaction between Bilbo and Gandalf. I don't understand how Bilbo how I'm sorry how Gandalf knows that Bilbo found a ring.
1: Yes, that was a bit um, a bit odd because I was always under the impression in the first Lord of the Rings film that Gandalf was surprised when Bilbo vanished at his hundredth and eleventh birthday and that's when he confronted him and found out about the ring
0: no no he knows that he has the ring but i don't think gandalf realizes that it's the one The ring,
1: ring. he just so i mean at the, the end of the hobbit we now know that gandalf says i know you've had a ring uh since the goblin tunnels uh he, he says you can keep it right but i always thought in lord of the rings that gandalf didn't know that at all i, I
0: I don't know how it is in the text, but I know in Peter Jackson's films, he knows. See, I, I think what's strange about it is that Gandalf sp- spent so little time with Bilbo, really after a certain point in Desolation of S- Smog, that I don't I don't know how he would be able to deduce that, Gan- uh, that Bilbo has it, because he hasn't observed been there to observe the changes in Bilbo's behavior.
1: Yeah. It's certainly not obvious. Well, it
0: seems like it's this retroactive addition to bridge the gap between the two films, rather than how it makes sense in the narrative of of these films. It's there because, like we were talking about with Fellowship, it's there because in the timeline, it, it validates how he knows about the ring in Fellowship. He still doesn't know it's the ring, but he knows that Bilbo has one of the rings of power.
1: But why does he need to know that?
0: I don't know. I, I, the, and why, I mean, that and just, how did
1: he figure it out? We, I, I think that there was the, no. It's lazy shorthand.
0: I, I think <laughs> it's a way to. I don't. I, I read an interview with Peter Jackson and Philippa Boyens, and they mentioned this scene specifically, and it seemed like they wanted it because it created some tension that wouldn't have been there between Bilbo and Gandalf anyway, and because it's very important because Bilbo lies to Gandalf because he says he didn't find anything. Right. Which I think is meant to be quite alarming. <laughs> now what did you think of the uh we haven't really talked about the battle itself. True. How what did you think of the battle?
1: It certainly was quite a spectacle. Pretty impressive. I have to say the dwarfs on the or Billy Comley on the uh was it it was a giant pig, wasn't it? A war pig. Yeah. That was pretty funny. I did like the orcs the, the orc leader directing his his troops using, uh you know, sort of a... The flags? The flags, yeah, the flags on top of the mountain. I thought that showed an intelligence, which I didn't think was there initially, but clearly it shows you this is an enemy not to be underestimated. And um, there's been a lot of coordination put into this attack. So I thought that was good. What, what, would, what did you think? Oh, can I just add, I, I thought the moment where the, the elves jumped over the dwarfs was quite a good one probably the best part of the battle
0: mm. i've never been a particular fan of how peter jackson captures action uh but the one thing i do like about how he approaches photographing uh, battle sequences is that he very much kind of looks at them the way that i feel like a cart a catar-
1: cartographer
0: cartographer yeah uh, he treats the landscapes very much like their maps which I think is thematically in keeping with how maps play such an important role in how Tolkien tells the stories. He keeps the camera high, it's very wide, you get a very good sense of the geography. And I will say one of the things that this film does do well is that you do have a clear understanding of where the dwarves are in relationship to, to the elves, in relationship to the orcs, and it's very good in establishing establishing all the different locations that the battles taking place the battle in in arab in the field of Erebor, then you have the attack of dale and then you have the attack on ravenhill you do it establishes where these locations are in relationship to one another very well and i do like that as the battle continues the stakes of the battle remain very high but it's more intimately fought you're getting mostly like one on one battle sequences to kind of serve as a way to get be given a a sense of where who which side is being defeated and i think one thing that in watching these films and thinking about lord of the rings something that's always been very important i think to how peter jackson uses the camera is maintaining a a sense of contrast and that whether that be like contrasting the size of a character to their environment or a character being larger than another character I do think one thing that I am impressed with the CGI technology in this film is that even within the wide establishing shots, there is that sense. There is the sense that the size of the dwarf army juxtaposed to the elves is in scale considerably different. The forced perspective technology of CGI that Peter Jackson just loves to use has improved a little bit since The Lord of the Rings. I do think, though, where he abuses it and he has always done this, and this has always driven me up the walls, is how spatially incoherent his movies are. Because these environments are all CGI, he can manipulate them however he wants. So he can change the nature of a space whenever it's most convenient for him. For instance, he'll establish the size of a battlefield, and then the battlefield will either will expand or will protract if that's if that benefits him. He's not he doesn't have to follow any kind of architectural logic in that sense. So if you show me in shot A that the dwarves and the orcs are within a hundred yards of one another, you then there's a cutaway. And then in wide shot B, they're two hundred yards from one another, that's bad screen direction. That's a a total disregard for continuity. And he does that all the time. I mean, in shot B, they should be closer to one another, not further apart. And I don't know, did you read that interview with him that I sent you?
1: Uh, Bits of it.
0: I mainly sent it just for one snippet. In the interview, he says, My job is to come up with interesting ways to shoot scenes, interesting camera moves, and interesting ways to show the performance. So Peter Jackson doesn't think that he's a storyteller. (laughs) Right there, he's talking about, and I know this is taken out of context and it's one quote, but I think it says something about how bombastic the nature of his filmmaking is to a degree. And it it proves that really his interests are more formal interests. It's more about overcoming some kind of technical issue rather than it is how the story functions. And, and, And that's, I think, More than the action of these films, I think the way he photographs action is why sometimes people come out of these films and feel that they're so exhausted. The other thing that's interesting about this movie, just visually, is that I can't think of any of his other movies that take place during the winter. Can you?
1: Uh, No, I don't think so.
0: Because ice is like, that's a, a terrain that I don't think we've seen in a Middle-Earth film before. And that's very prominent in the Ravenhill sequences.
1: Uh, I mean, they went up the mountain in the Fellowship of the Ring.
0: Oh, that's that's true, yeah.
1: That's more snow, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was only for sort of ten minutes or so. But uh, yes, that would probably be it in terms of icy, wintry conditions. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think of the White Council scene? when they rescue Gandalf and
1: Galadriel's
0: appearance.
1: Christopher Lee, by the way, did all of his own stunts in that scene. Wow. Uh, Which is really impressive for someone who's in his 90s.
0: He's a busy guy. If you've seen the scene. Put out a metal Christmas album. Yes.
1: Also, he's an expert in martial arts as well. I found Mm. out recently. But that scene, yes, I think I was hoping for more from the the conclusion of it in terms of Sauron. Uh, we've been building up that dull gourdour for the, for the last two films. They, they've almost been prepping for this. Teasing us with evil things going on in there and all, all those scenes with Radagaster Brown. And um, it's been a little bit confusing as to exactly where it's all been going uh, and, and to what direction they were heading in. But for it all to boil down to Cate Blanchett rescuing Gandalf and just banishing Sauron is a bit disappointing.
0: Well, I do think, though, uh, Saruman's I'll Take Care of Him, that directly ties to, you know, the point that maybe he starts to turn into an evil force. Yes, yeah. Uh, The only thing about that scene, I don't understand the Galadriel outburst. I know in Fellowship... We see that when Frodo tempts her with the ring. Mm-hmm. but th- but that has a context, you know that's like that's that's showing what would happen to her if she did take the ring the the dark forces that would overcome her if she took the ring. There's no context for that in this film. it like it doesn't have any place within that scene like if you if you think about like the themes of light and darkness that exist in all of these movies, they exist in the books. It doesn't make any sense why then you would ward off darkness with darkness. That's what just didn't... Like, you're, fighting, you're fighting evil with evil. And I didn't understand what that was doing. I thought that was one of the, the, the worst scenes in the film just in terms of... It didn't feel like that was realized in a way that made much sense. It just felt like it was there to foreshadow something that would happen in a later movie. But they didn't really think about what the consequences of of foreshadowing that would be?
1: I heard in a in a podcast with um, it was either Fran Walsh or Philippa Boynes, that that moment where Kate Blanchett uses some sort of power to to take the situation under control. That is Kate Blanchett effectively giving up uh, a lot of her power and diminishing her life by doing it and makes her a lot weaker, something to do with that. I- again, it all sounded a bit vague. And... But why would she appear evil in that case, though? I don't know.
0: It doesn't make sense why her outburst would be that of, of evil. I would think it would be like this incredible omission of light or something like that. Mm. Do you have any closing thoughts regarding how this stands as a trilogy on its own, apart from the Lord of the Rings?
1: Um, I think people will, when they revisit them, hopefully, like you were mentioning earlier, appreciate them a bit more. But I think they're always going to live in the shadow of, of, their sort of compa- the companion trilogy. But uh, there are some really great performances in there, and some incredible technical filmmaking uh, work, particularly with, the CGI, I'm sure there's some massive advancements in in there, and some and I think Martin Freeman and Richard Armitage and Ian McKellen as well are very impressive actors in in these in this trilogy, and like you were mentioning, Smaug really is an incredible creation. So that, there are lots of positives there, but for me, there's also just a few nagging negatives and annoyances that I don't remember having with the Lord of the Rings.
0: I'm not sure. I don't think the gap in quality between the two trilogies is is as massive as people seem to think they are. Mm. I do think these movies will, like you said, live in the shadow, unfortunately. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that there's been so much retroactive additions in these trilogies in trying to tie them directly to The Lord of the Rings that maybe was a, a mistake to a certain degree because it it almost makes these films feel like they're the, the little sibling and they have to wear the hammy-downs of the big brother or something, in a way. So out of uh, five possible turkeys, how many will you be giving The Battle of the Five Armies?
1: I'll be giving it three. I'll
0: be giving it two and a half. So before we conclude uh, this episode, we did receive an email which comes from Christopher in Nevada who writes, After just finishing the entire back catalog of episodes, I was surprised to discover that never once were you asked what your earliest cinematic memories were. Therefore I ask, what are your earliest cinematic memories? Which films, either in the cinema or on home video, left the greatest impression and influenced your cinephilia? So I'll start with you, Nick. Can you remember some films that left a strong impression on you when you were younger?
1: Well, my first cinema experience, I've been told, was a re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which I was taken to see with my mum. I don't remember that, though. The first film I actually remember going to see at the cinema, because I was thinking about this today, and I really was struggling to think of something when I went to the cinema, but the earliest one I can really remember is... 101 Dalmatians, the 1996 live action film starring Jeff Daniels.
0: Have you seen this one, Zach? I probably saw it in the theatre when I was younger.
1: Yeah, Yeah, um, I reckon I must have seen a film before this in the cinema, but uh, this was the earliest one I could actually remember. Um, Surprising to say that this film's not had much of a real impact on me, I don't think, but um, it is the earliest thing I can remember. Other films during the 90s that I really did. Love and I think probably have influenced my film going. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles used to adore that, and um, I don't think I saw that in the cinema, but I had it on video and watched that a lot. Star Wars, um, Toy Story, Kindergarten Cop. I, I remember I had on uh, VHS. Watch that. It's not sitcom. a tumor. <laughs> Stop whining. I am the party pooper. <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire. The Indian in the Cupboard. Have you ever seen that? No, but I'm aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. That was one that I don't think is particularly well known, but we just happened to have it on video, so I I saw that a lot.
0: You still keep an Indian in your cupboard, don't you? (laughs) Uh,
1: The Mask, the Jim Carrey film, uh, Hook. I really uh, enjoyed that when I was younger. And then I also remembered a couple of films I saw when I was definitely too young to see them. War of the Worlds, the original War of the Worlds. I remember seeing that on TV when I was probably 10, maybe 8. Probably yeah, younger, maybe about 8. And uh, I know, I remember there being a scene where the main characters are hiding out in a sort of dilapidated building, and an alien creeps in to the building, and they turn around and see it, and it makes this horrible squealing noise, and then runs away. And I remember that absolutely terrifying me when I was younger. Um, I also saw uh, The Terminator well before I should have done My dad, for some reason, let me watch it with him. I was was probably seven or eight years old and there was a sex scene that really confused me, as well as all the violence, which um, I found pretty terrifying at the time. Uh, Also, Jurassic Park. I remember being at school wanting to go and see this film in the cinema but not being allowed to by my mum because she thought it would be too scary for me and so she went to the um, she went to the cinema to see it with some friends and decided that the film was too scary for me and I wasn't allowed to go and I had to wait till it came out on video but everyone at school had seen it oh that was really didn't wasn't very happy about that
0: uh well kind of like you I can remember seeing some some Disney re-release stuff when I was probably two or three in the theater. I know 1995 was the year that I kind of started going to the theater on a on a regular basis. So I saw a lot of films from that year. Free Willy, Toy Story, uh, Pocahontas. I remember seeing Casper pretty vividly. Oh, yeah, Casper. But I think Babe is the movie that had probably left the strongest... Impression on me of that group. I think I still watch that movie today, and the "That'll Do, Pig" line still, still tears me up. Uh,
1: what are your thoughts on Pig in the City?
0: I'm a fan, big
1: fan. I've never seen it. I must get around to watching it. Uh, but,
0: but I can remember though the library was really important, uh, which is where I think I became exposed to a lot of classic Hollywood. And I think some foreign films as well. For whatever reason, I saw a lot of John Huston's movies when I was pretty young. So Mm -hmm. The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Moby Dick, African Queen, The Man Who Would Be King. And I think I kind of chose his films by accident. I think I had more to do with the fact that most of his movies are adaptations. And I know that I was somebody, was a child that was always interested in literature that that wasn't in the children's section of the library. So I remember reading The Maltese Falcon and Moby Dick at a pretty young age. So I think I naturally gravitated towards watching the film adaptations. And then the Marx Brothers. Duck Soup was like my favorite movie as a kid growing up. And I think it has something to do with the fact that I identified with their personas. I think I wanted to be one of the Marx Brothers in a way. Because they they were a little goofy... Looking, they weren't the most athletic people in the world, which was different than somebody like Buster Keaton who I had seen at that point and I liked. But I think I was more in awe of how athletic Buster Keaton was. So with the Marx Brothers, they were they were just they were oh their thing was that they were funny and that they could play the harp or they could play the piano and Groucho could really deliver the the zingers. To me, they look like people on on film that were just kind of goofing off, and I think I tried to emulate that, which I think might have gotten me into some trouble. (laughs) Next episode, we'll be discussing Francois Truffaut's 1971 romantic drama Two English Girls, starring Jean-Pierre Leo, Kika Markham, and Stacey Tendetter. Film Jive can be reached at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes.
1: You can also follow me on Twitter at Wheatley underscore Nick.
0: Are you back on the Twitter?
1: I am. Uh, new Year's resolution was to do more social media, so I'm trying to get back into it. Uh, yeah, so Wheatley W H E A T L E Y underscore Nick.
0: You can send all your thoughts and feedback to FilmJive at gmail.com. And uh, just to make an announcement now, because it is the new year, I do encourage everyone to begin submitting best of 2014 lists and feedback regarding movies in 2014 because we are going to do a golden jive turkey award episode but it won't be coming out until the weekend of the oscars ceremony so i i encourage that people begin to do so we'd love to hear from you otherwise thank you for listening to the film jive podcast please tune in next episode and until next time keep on jiving